Welcome one and all to the Track One Side One podcast. I'm your host Gaz Jones and today's guest we've got superstar DJ Johnny Cabbage aka the lovely Mr. Nick Butt. As you'll see it's a cracking chat, loads of good stories, some top laughs and five amazing songs put on the table for us to dissect and discuss. So please enjoy and I'll speak to you as ever at the end. Cheers. I feel kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. You are listening to the Track One Side One podcast with me, your host, Gaz Jones. The greatest. Each week, a guest picks their five favorite album opening tracks, and we dissect, discuss, and debate each one. So let's put on our classics and have a little chat then, shall we? And we are live. Joining me on uh, today's episode by the means of Skype and that there interweb ting, we've got Johnny Cabbage, a.k.a. the lovely Nick Butt. How are you doing, mate? How are you doing, guys? Thanks for having me on. Before we start, mate, how hard was it getting it down to just five songs? I think the probably the, the caveat to, to put in at this point is that this is probably if I did this tomorrow or next week or in a few months time, it might be there'll be similarities, but there would be different things in the list. So I, I, I kind of went with the ones that just immediately leapt into my head. Otherwise, you end up second guessing these things yeah, and you driving yourself in, into, you know, you paint yourself into a corner. Track number one. Uh, we're going to go. We're going to go back to the um, 1965. Um, and we're going to go back to the first Beatles album I ever heard. Um, it was my mum's. Uh, I've still got it. I've still got her original mono vinyl copy of it. And the opening shit on is Drive My Car. <sighs> I don't know. It's just, I, I, like, I, I kind of like opening tracks on albums that are, have a bit of a, they're a bit of a statement, whether it's lyrically or musically. This, for me, is where they get interesting. This is when they're starting to smoke more dope. This is when they're starting to listen to Indian music. This is when they're starting to... All these, these R&B influences, like Otis Redding and all that, is, is all coming to the fore, like the tunes like Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out. You can hear them evolving as a band. And I remember hearing an interview with John Lennon where he just said, Rubber Soul for me was when it all started happening. And I find it hard to disagree with that. This tune grooves. It's just a belter. Of a, of a, and it, it's up tempo and it starts off with a guitar lick. Well, you know, what else do you want? And cowbell. All the, more well, cow, the cow. got a bit of cowbell. Oh, you know, and uh, speaking as, as a drummer, Gaz, mm. I don't know if we need to approach the thorny subject of Ringo Starr, but for, for <laughs> me, Ringo's God, right? Ringo is the reason I started playing the drums. He plays a backbeat like very few people can. And his drumming on this tune is just great. He's so tight. He's so yeah. locked in with McCartney. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things with this. I think one of the biggest kind of Motown influences, it's like an Otis Redding um, bass line. And it's the fact that the bass and the guitar are playing virtually the same kind of melody lines. Yeah, I mean, they always had an R&B influence, but mm. it was at that point where they just kind of went, well, you know, fuck it. Let's... And I think it shows what a tight little, what a tight little band they were, you know, as Paul yeah. would say. He leads with, with his left hands. Yeah. When, he, yeah, when when he's doing tom work and doing like roundhouses and stuff, he's not 
you know, because he, he plays in a traditional right-hand drummer's setup, but when he's doing tom work and stuff, he leads with his left hand. It's so weird how we play. And people say, like, oh, Ringo's drumming is shit. And it's like, well, try and do what he does. I have said that. I have said that. Try and do what he does. Try and do do with your, instead of, yeah, swap your hands around. Play yep. what you would normally play with your right hand with your left hand. Well, why do you want me to do that? I said, because that's what he does. Like I say, drive my car, it's, it's one of those straight out the blocks tunes. It just, it just goes, bam, here we go. Have an yeah. up-tempo one. We'll settle down later, but have a bit of a dance first, you know. And, and it's also, it also start, we were talking about Ringo's drumming style. The, the first thing he does on it is one of those backwards floor tom to yeah. rack tom fills that he does. Yeah. Yeah. That just sounds so amazing. Yeah, it sounds incredible. You ever try to play one of them? Fucking yeah, hell. it's fucking impossible. Yeah, and, and, and another thing I wanted to just touch on briefly before we move on, as far as opening tracks go, Beatles weren't really any slouches when it came to that. If you look at their albums, no. it, tracks that they used to open albums with, like you had Back in the USSR, yeah. uh, Taxman, Come Together. What are the characteristics that make a great opening track? That's a very good question. It doesn't have to be dramatic or up-tempo or particularly in your face. But I like, I like it where you kind of, it sets a scene or what's the best way to put it? Like a statement of intent. If you don't know what we're about, you're soon going to know. Track two, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, this is, we're going chronologically from when I first was exposed, if you'll pardon the expression to these records. So I'm going with London Calling by The Clash. I was 13 years old. I got a £5 record token for Christmas off some auntie or other. I went down to Woolworths in Sandown on the Isle of Wight. And in the racks was the first, the latest album from The Clash, their third album on it, I think. And I had a five pound record token in my hand and there was a big green sticker on the front of the album that said, pay no more than five pounds. There you go. Still got it. Still got the same copy that I bought those years ago. It still plays fine, despite it being rinsed. I don't know. London Calling. I mean, again, it's a big tune. It's a tune that everyone knows. But I think it's a tune. I mean, it thumps out the fucking speakers. I mean, that opening just before the bass riff comes in, yeah. just where you got the guitars and top ahead and just thumping. But in absolute synchronicity, the guitar and the drums. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. the bass is, is almost like it's almost like a lead instrument over that, especially yeah. over the intro. Again, we're going back to favourite drums again, I'm afraid, Gaz, because Ringo is God, <laughs> then Topper's probably Jesus or something, I would have thought. Topper, another drummer that I adored and mm. I, I used to practice along to the london calling album and i've nicked so many fills and licks mm. and things off that man i also liked as a 13 year old the subject matter of the song seemed dangerous if you live by the river in london and and, and london's drowning why why have you no fear surely you sh- and what's all this about wheat growing thin and nuclear reactors melting down it just sounded mm. this big as we went from the 70s into the 80s mm. It just seemed like a, um, I don't know, what's the word? A harbinger, a portent. One of those songs mm. that just went, there's times coming. There's some shit coming. It's around yeah. the corner. It's also one of those songs that I never get bored with. No. You know, you, no. ever. You know, you can't, like, you might go, I might sort of pull London calling the album out of the rack and think, so I listen to that. Oh, I don't know. I've heard it so many times. And then as soon as you put it on, you're like, yeah, of course I'm going to fucking listen to it. I'm going to listen to it all the way through. <laughs> yeah. And for a teenager, it also exposed me to different genres because there were covers on that album. There's mm-hmm. a cover, Wrong and Boyo, that uh, the styles they went through as a band yeah. on that album. Were, and so you kind of go, it's, it's hard to, when, when you're getting into music as I was, and you were kind of what, I was 10, 11 when punk hit, 
so you didn't go to any gigs or anything and it was all kind of i lived on the isle of Wight, and it was all happening up in london and people had safety pins through their noses or, or whatever the fucking tabloid said so it just seemed like a da- it seemed like a nasty dangerous horrible aggressive um unwelcoming kind of thing mm. particularly when you looked at the you know the, the way the band's dressed and <laughs> what you read in the papers yeah. about them. But, but i think london calling is a very welcoming album i think it's a very yeah. warm album it's a band going you know what we like this sort of music and we think mm. people who listen to us need to listen to it. it was them showing off their influences topper just topper man just man who at his lowest ebb mm. got arrested for stealing a bus stop he stole one of his, he stole one of them portable you know those little portable bus stop yeah he nicked one and when he ended up in court it turned out he was still earning 100 grand a year from clash royalty really? but was just blowing it all on smack i'm glad he turned himself around because he's yeah, right. you know, another hero the most iconic album cover ever is certainly up there and, st- and, and copied from an Elvis Presley. Yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 of course. One of my favourite things about this album is the fact that, despite it coming out in 1979, Rolling Stone magazine um, named it the <laughs> album of the 80s. Am I allowed to say stupid yanks on the podcast? Yeah, fuck it. I, I have, haven't I? Fuck them. Yeah. <clears throat> I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think to be fair to Rolling Stone, it, it actually might have been released in the States in 1980. But I, I, I'm not in the mood to. I'm not in the mood to forgive Rolling Stone. They reviewed a Bob Dylan album once. With the opening line was, "What is this shit?" The phony Beatlemania line always yeah. kind of fascinated me. I don't know if that's in relation to like the punk explosion of '77. I have my you own know. theory about this because Strummer, Strummer and Jones um, were Beatles fans. I think it was about what came after the Beatles in the '70s, where you had bands who were huge. You know, and a lot of those bands were touted as being the next Beatles, the new Beatles, and I th- and and then they and then they all fell apart because obviously they didn't have the talent to sustain that level of attention. And so I think the phony Beatlemania reference to my mind is in basically going, well, look at all these wankers, they're gone now. All these phony Beatles, they've gone. Is the importance of an opening track as we first knew it when we were starting to obsess over music when we were younger? Do you think that importance is something that's been lost in the digital age? Yeah. Next question. No, um, yeah, of course it, yeah, of course it has, because albums increasingly became a series of tracks that you could mm. pick and choose and you could mix and match, you could play them whatever order you wanted. And I was guilty of that for a very, very long time, particularly when I first started getting into digital downloads. I'd walk around with my phone loaded up with a few gigs of music and just hit the shuffle button. And then one day I, I just remember sort of thinking, well, I've got all this vinyl here and I never take it out and all these albums, and I never take them out. I don't take them out and just play one track and put them back. When I take them out, I put it on side one and play it through to the end because that's how. So why am I treating digital music like that? And I think it's it's a convenience thing. And it's also the fact that a lot of albums aren't even made that way. I don't think it's strictly true. You know, you couldn't apply that across the board. You know, as we as we know, um, all sweeping generalizations are wrong. The fact that you can just get one track. You know, you couldn't go into... I couldn't have gone into Woolies in Sandown in 1979 as a 13-year-old and said, can I just buy Working for the Clampdown off of London Calling? Can I just take that track home mm. with me? Mm. You, you had to buy the whole thing. It was a package. With the, rec- with the resurgence of vinyl, maybe that's changing a little, I think. Mm. I mean, my daughter's 20. She's, she's into her vinyl. She, she, will, mm. she will put an album on and listen to it from start to finish. And, and, nice. and, and I think a lot of albums reward that. But no, I think, I think you're right. It is something that's 
has been has been lost to a certain I don't think completely, but certainly to a greater extent it has, yeah. Track three, mate. We'll move forward a year, shall we? <laughs> a whole year. Let's move forward a year, a oh, whole okay, year. Now. Right, okay. Oh, yeah, I know. Where where is angry fourteen year old Nicholas now? He's listening to Dexies, mate. <laughs> nice. He's listening to Dexies Midnight Runners, he's listening to the first album, Searching for the Young Soul Rebels, and he's listening to the tune Burn It Down, which blew my mind when I first heard it. Well, let's talk about how the song starts, shall we? Please. There's radio interference. Someone is um, searching through a medium wave radio yeah. for a kickoff. Medium <laughs> wonderful. Wave. Ask, wonderful. Ask your, gran- ask your granddad, kids. <laughs> right, so th- and the first tune that comes up is Smoke on the Water, a little yep. snippet of Smoke on the Water by Deep yep. Purple. And then that gets, that, that disappears. And then the next thing that comes up is our old friends, the Sex Pistols. And they're doing, I think it's Holidays in the Sun, I think is the is the excerpt and then that goes and then it's the specials and rat race which was a current tune when that when this dexies album came out so you've got those those three things and all of a sudden that radio is snapped off and kevin Rowland says burn it down for god's sake burn it down and you kind of go "Ooh, someone's tired this is there was just an attitude there i, I loved that about dexies i still love that about kevin Rowland. as far as i'm concerned he's a fucking genius i saw him at corn exchange in cambridge about eight years ago when the last time they toured and I could barely contain my excitement of being in the same room as him. But it was just it was just having a band that had the, the energy from the punk kind of side of things. That you know, they're very, very aggressive band Dexies. Mm. Even the slow numbers on this album are aggressive. And then they combine it with the passion of Stax and Motown. And it's a <laughs> it's a song all about racism against the Irish. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's like, you know what I mean? Because Roland is of Irish descent. Yeah. And it's him just basically going, well, you call us, or you call us, all us Irish thick. <clears throat> well, you know what? Fuck you. This, the chorus of this song is just a list of Irish writers. And yeah, I think it was just the sheer fucking bollocks that they had. Mm. It's your first album. Mm-hmm. You've not even had a hit single yet. I don't, th- mm. I don't think Gino had been a hit yet. No. You'd They'd already stolen the master tapes from EMI over some argument. They, they'd locked the producer in a cupboard or something and jumped in a car and drove away with the master tapes because they weren't happy with something EMI were doing. The whole thing about that band just screamed rebellion. And it, yeah, it intrigued me because my idea of rebellion up to that point had been punk. You know, you kind of think, well, it's, you've, got to, you've got to be playing loud guitars and you've got to be shouting because that's how angry bands are supposed to sound and yet Dexys came out and they were like they were like the bloke in the pub who, yeah. who the, what are you fucking looking at as soon as you glance at them <laughs> yeah 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 they're that, they're, that, they're, that, that you know and I think sad little skinny wheezy Nick was attracted <laughs> to that quite desperately you know I just like I, lo- I like people who stand up to authority I'm in, I'm a naturally anti-authoritarian person myself mm. And I just, I, I love that attitude about them. And yeah, burn it down. Burn all that shit down. You don't fucking need it. Sorry, plus they had a thing about purity. They weren't drinkers. They weren't, they didn't take drugs. Burn it down. There's that, the, the, there's, there's also that kind of crossover between the, the, the purifying fire. Burn all this shit down. Get rid of it. Let's start again. It's no good Sorry. to any of us. I could wax lyrical about Dexies for how long you got. If you're talking statements of intent. intent. Yeah, but it's not just statement of intent. It's a statement of intent on your fucking debut album. <clears throat> that's nuts. That's nuts. 
the chorus. I mean, it was originally released as a single called Dance Dance. Yeah, it was. Yeah, this is like the re- yeah the re-recorded. This yeah, is like the re-recorded, it's a re-recorded version. version. Yeah. The, the, the chorus on Dance Dance doesn't have the expletive in it, which I think I think the expletive. Not that I'm a fan of swearing, Gaz, as, as you probably are well aware. Um, <laughs> cunt. So the chorus. Shut it. You don't understand it. Shut it. That's not the way I planned it. Shut your fucking mouth till you know the truth. I don't know. There's something really impressive about coming out like that on your debut album. Do you still enjoy listening to an album from start to finish? Do you still get a lot of pleasure, you know, of, of pulling out a sleeve, putting the needle down, and just hearing yes. that, you know, hear, hearing the crackle? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Um, when was the last time I did it? Probably a few days ago. Yeah. I've, been, I did, I've been trying to do this thing on Instagram. Um, where I've been p- playing an album and taking a photograph of it and sticking it. It's quite narcissistic, isn't it? But then Instagram yeah. is. So I think the the last one I listened to from start to finish, it was probably a jazz album of some description because I don't think you can put a jazz album on. I feel do you know I feel dis- it, Do I know what it was? Yeah. 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 It was um, Art Blakey, the big beat. Nice. Art Blakey and his jazz messengers. One of the few drummers that I can bear to listen to a solo from. <laughs> they are very. They are very few and far between. Track four, mate. You know, I said we were doing this chronologically. Well, you fu- kind you of fucked lie. up. Yeah. No, I don't fuck up. I lie. See, this album, oh. next album, came out in '76, but I didn't actually hear it until. We're doing this autobiographically, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> we're doing it in the in the years that Nick discovered them. Because that's what's important. Me. Damn, that's damn yes, right. Exactly. So there's an album, album by Parliament called Mothership Connection, came out in '76. I didn't hear. The opening track off this album until 1985, and I only heard it when it was the first track on a Parliament compilation that I bought. So it's called P Funk. Brackets wants to get funked up, and what can you say about George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you. I'll go with my first introduction to it, and this is where Bootsy comes in. Um, I was at my mum and dad's house on the Isle of Wight, 17 years old, and I get a visit from a friend of mine who'd been round to a local junk shop that stocked loads of second-hand vinyl. And I opened the door, and he just held up this album cover and went, fucking look at that! And he bought it on the strength of the cover. Amazing. Because Bootsy Collins, as you know, rather eccentrically attired gentleman. And so this album, Player of the Year. So that was my first introduction to the world of P-Funk. And we just started going out. And in those days, you could track down these albums for, like, you know, dirt cheap in junk shops. And we just started buying everything we could by Parliament, Funkadelic, Bootsy Collins, Brides of Funkenstein, Parlette, all that stuff. I hadn't heard P-Funk wants to get funked up until like years later. And it kind of made a bit of sense already, but it made more sense. Because this tune, as you know, it starts off like you're listening to a radio station. Good evening. Do not attempt. Do not attempt to adjust your radio. Not don't touch your radio. Don't attempt to touch it. There's nothing wrong. We're here to bring you this special show. We will return it to you as soon as you are groovy. And it's just like, oh my God, what have I let myself in for here? This is going to be fun. And it's just basically an extent. It's a series of strange little monologues by George Clinton talking about funk and the effects of <coughs> funk and why we should all get the funk. And and and, and a massive chorus. Make my funk the P funk. Yeah, I think if it's possible possible to be sexually attracted to a song. Then this would probably be it. Well, sexually, like it attra- sexually attracted to a genre. To a genre, yeah. It was. I mean, I was already into sort of like at that age. I was already listening to sort of Motown and Stax and like I say all the soul stuff and beginning to dip my toe into that water. I mean, my, and also jazz. My dad was a big jazz head. But this was just something else. 
when you listen to jazz, you listen to guys who have got serious chops, right? Serious fucking chops. And most of the time, or certainly the records that were in my dad's collection, they were somber looking gentlemen, regardless of what they might have got off to when the camera wasn't on them. You know, they were they were besuited and sharp. And these guys, Bootsy and George Clinton and that, were fucking, you know, platform shoes and Diamante star-shaped sunglasses and big long wigs and singing songs about cloning themselves and you know, and, 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 and and it's a concept album. It's a funk concept album. Christ knows how many drugs they were doing. Oh. Although, having read his autobiography, I would say a lot. Yeah. Or all of them, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yes. I'll ask you the question now. What did you think of this? Was this something that you were aware of before? I knew of Parliament. It's, it's, it's something I've been dipping my toe into more so recently with, like, Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, yes. My, my first kind of exposure to kind of Bootsy Collins and stuff was, again, what we were talking about before we started the podcast about how excited I am seeing the 1990s Top of the Pops. Groovy it was Groovy and Heart Delight. Yeah. You know, that was my first exposure to Bootsy. Bootsy. And, that's a, that's uh, a nice gentle introduction, though, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, no, completely, yeah. completely. I remember someone telling me that you should check out this stuff. I liked James Brown stuff when I was yeah. younger, um, yeah. but I remember people telling me, oh, you've got to check out the 70s stuff, the 70s stuff, the live 70s albums. You know, that's where it's at. A bit further down the line from there, going fully into, like, hip-hop in the mid mm-hmm. to late 90s. Me, me being a nerdy obsessive, and I'm sure you, you did it as well, You when you bought albums, you would read, obsessively read, not only the lyric sheet, but the thank yous, who played the solos, what samples, where the samples were from. Yeah. And that's how I, I, well, I got into so much music. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like that equivalent of the, from, yeah. what we were talking about earlier with London Calling, The Clash. It's one of those mm. albums that you kind of go, well, I didn't think I'd like this sort of music, but the way they play it, I really do. So who is this yeah. a cover? Who who did the original? And then you find, you find yourself in some fucking <clears throat> flea market on the Isle of Wight desperately looking for albums by the pioneers and stuff like that you know and yeah. um you know yeah and and, and, and yeah. yeah i think the hip-hop thing definitely i think clinton and is clinton or is it or james brown one of them is the most sampled uh it's james, james brown the funky drummer must break. Brown, must, it must be yeah. really and then of course when the when all the g-funk stuff came out the, the yeah. snoop dogg and the warren g stuff the warren g man, that yeah. was so and the chronic that was so yeah. p-funk yeah. And, and, yeah. and now it's been carried on because the, the Childish Gambino album. Yeah. That's a funkadelic album, man. If he doesn't yeah, get completely. how he didn't get his arse sued, he must be. Yeah. <laughs> There's a sax solo in there by Maceo Parker. That's just, it just never fails just to put a grin <laughs> on my face. If I'm not, if I'm not caught dancing in my geriatric dad style already, then that <laughs> sax solo coming in will, will make me do it. I may even play air sax if there's nobody else in the house. Always a bit of air sax, sax on my phone. This, this whole, Tune man is just kind of brass powerhouse. Yeah, in it. All over it is. Oh. Well, he had he, he he basically George Clinton nicked James Brown's band. Yeah. Because you know, Bootsy and Bootsy's brother Catfish, his real name is Phelps, I believe. F- Phelps. Phelps. Okay. Yeah, and Bootsy's wow. real name is. This is going to bring everyone down, man. Bootsy's real name is William. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> William Collins, Bootsy. Just before we go on to your last track, mate, I just say obviously we can't play uh, the tunes because uh, during the podcast because of the glorious copyright police. But what I do, I do an accompanying Spotify playlist okay. that goes out with each live episode, and uh, people can have a listen to it and uh, hopefully have as much a good a time listening to it as we are talking about it because it's been a right fucking laugh so far. Mate. <laughs> 
I'm enjoying it, man. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. On to the final track, mate. Last one then. And we go racing through time now. Racing all the way, almost bank. No, no. 2002. Well, this album has an interesting backstory. What, what is the album? And um, I, what song we're talking about, mate? We are talking about I Am Trying to Break Your Heart by Wilco from the album Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. If a gun was held to my head, would probably be in my top five albums, along with Spirit of Eden, London Calling, Rubber Soul, and something else. This album, they recorded it for their label. They were on reprise records at the time, and they recorded it, and the label didn't like it, and they got dumped off the label, but they bought the album back off the label, signed to another Warner's subsidiary, and had the biggest album of their career. I was a Wilco fan before the album came out. I'd been... I got into them from their second album, being there. And then on their next album, Summer Teeth, they sounded, they started having these Beach Boysy influences, which I'm absolutely not averse to. And then they, and then they, they, they bought this album back and they streamed it. And that was where I first heard it. So I, I listened to the album for about a year <clears throat> before it actually came out. And again, if we're talking, we're going back to statements of intent. If you'd played me the, if you just said who do you think this is? And played it with my knowledge then. I'd have gone, well, I don't know who it is. And they'd gone, it's Wilco. And I'd have just gone, fuck off. Before Jeff Tweedy's vocals come in, I'd, I'd have had yeah. no idea it was that band because mm. it's so radic. The sound palette, the arrangements, everything was just completely different. And I think part of that was down to the fact they got Jim O'Rourke to mix it because I've heard other mixes on bootlegs. And okay. the songs still shine. But they're, they're not as it's not as powerful, and 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 this song is is quite powerful. It's a very beautiful song about, as far as I understand it, about regret. It seems to me about a man who's lost control of his habits, whatever they might be, drinking or whatever, and is deliberately fucking up a relationship, and he knows he's doing it. Again, we go, we also go back to drummers because I never heard a drummer play a beat like Glenn Cochi plays at the beginning of this song. Yes, yeah, incredible. It's, it's when just, those drums first come in, it's unbelievable. And I've seen Wilco live a few times now, and they play that. They always play that tune. And he's just, I, I mean, every time I've been to see them, I can't take my eyes off that drummer. It was the album that kind of just went, all right, I like Wilco. They're good. Yeah, they write some nice songs. Yeah, they're, they're interesting. They've got some, they've clearly got some dark sides to them and some issues that they like to explore on their records, you know. But this album was just the one that just made me really sit up and just go, fuck. And, and, and then you read about the story of the album being made and Jeff Tweedy's stress-induced migraines that ended up with him being addicted to opioids. You know, hmm. the whole album has a kind of, with the exception of one song, it has a very dread atmosphere. The whole album is, 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 hmm. is kind of mired in this almost like drug-induced apathy. And, and it's almost like an album that's struggling to come out. You know, it's almost like the band are sweating blood because hmm. it's almost beyond their capabilities to make music like this. But fucking hell, they're going to do it. It's almost a woozy, foreboding atmosphere mm. all over it. This song, for me, it's the closest kind of soundbite I could get. It was like the birds playing Krautrock through a 70s AM rock station filter. Yeah, that's why Wilco, one of my favourite bands. Yeah, well, they've even, dab- they mean, they dabbled in Krautrock as well. There's a track on their follow-up album. Mm. Um, a ghost is born there's a track called spiders mm. which has a crack rock beat mm. and then breaks into this big rock out section in the middle and goes on for something like three days you know they're, they're a phenomenal band i think and jeff tweedy is a is a is an incredible songwriter mm. very perceptive i don't know how much of it is 
autobiographical. I don't really care. I just I think the way he puts the songs across is believable. Oh, completely. Do you know what I mean? I think that you know. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to think that he wasn't going through a lot of these kind of traumas and shit when he was making the album. But I've seen the doc- if you've not, I've seen the documentary about the making of the album, and um, he was. So if you, I recommend that if you've not seen it. Mm. They sack a band member, they get a new drummer in. The, the the drummer on this album was a brand new drummer who who I think astonishingly turned up for his first day with the band. Uh, they, apparently they turned around to him and said, "Okay, so do you want to jam on something to get warmed up?" And he goes, "No, let's play play one of your tunes." And they said, "Okay, well, which one have you learned?" And he went, "I've learned all of them." <laughs> and he basically turned up with two single albums and a double album under his belt. That if they just went, "Let's do this one," he he knew it. Well, Glenn, Glenn Coach is a, a force of nature. I think he's he's um. He's an avant-garde composer in his own right as well. But an, yeah, an, ast- an amazing drummer. And, and, and to say this song, for me, the way he plays it, the way the drummer plays this, this, this song, was so unusual for me. I'd not really heard, outside of Beefheart, which, you know, I just, I'd love the way he, little, little polyrhythms and little, I just, oh, yeah. And the, and the song itself is, is heartbreaking, I think. And it, it, it yeah. ends with a big burst of electric noise at the end. So what's not yes. to like? Exactly. You know, I I love the fact it's kind of, especially with that intro before the drums come in, that sort of kind of delicate lacing of that almost like top end, almost white noise and kind of interference whistles and stuff. It's you yeah. know, the atmospherics, just the way it leads you in. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Pretty it's pretty much a perfect together. intro. And, yeah. and you can find it on YouTube, but there, as I say, there is another mix of that song. I well, I I I I've never listened to it all the way through because it's, it's shit. It just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't sound like the same song. It doesn't sound right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the the production and the mixing and the atmosphere that, that that brings to that track is perfect for the the subject matter. It's almost it's almost perfect. In fact, the whole album's almost perfect. Mate, Nick, that's been a fucking incredible chat. I bid I bid you fond farewell, <laughs> mate. <laughs> okay, yeah, I better go. I better go and have my. I've got a Chinese takeaway going cold downstairs, so I'm gonna have that. And there we go. Another amazing chat. Five absolutely classic tunes put on the virtual mixtape. Big thanks to Nick for taking the time out and guesting. And I hope you all enjoyed it. And who knows? Maybe you've discovered your new musical obsession. And I'll catch you all on the flip side. Adios. I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. You've been listening to the Track One Side One podcast with me, Gaz Jones. Give us a follow on all the social medias at Track One Side One Podcast to keep fully up to date with all future episodes and guests. Where there will also be links to Spotify playlists that will accompany each show. So please check them out. And I'll see you soon.